have the chance to sit down with all of those stakeholders that are involved in, in like the whole educational system, if you want. You can talk school-wise or even larger and once map out the problems and see how you can solve that. So instead of like, I don't know, just do brainstorming sessions or something like that, that it's not something structured, you can go with, okay, there is this problem that, I don't know, regarding our school or regarding our uh, whatever, let's say school, because that's easier. Regarding our school, uh, lay out the problem, talk about it, present it. You can come up, teachers can come and present it, or parents can come and present the, their aspect as well. And after that, you can lay out a, a map for that to see, okay, where that problem presents in our journey as students, as parents, as teachers, as whatever. And you can come up with a couple of solutions. So it definitely helps you not just mapping out, but coming up with possible solutions. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. If there's one observation I've had over the past year in reading and seeing how we approach designing solutions to challenges and thinking about how to create more relevant and equitable systems, it's that innovation can't happen in isolation. From micro schools to Google's plan to disrupt the college degree, everyone's wondering what impact these things might have. In thinking about that answer, I often remember, the car industry didn't create Tesla. The book publishing industry didn't create Amazon, and the TV industry didn't create Netflix. Yet each of these life-changing innovations introduced a new way of seeing and experiencing the world that industries were then able to adapt and adopt. One of the reasons we fail to design these solutions within our own industries is because we're often so deeply embedded within that system that we believe we have all the answers. Author Shunru Suzuki says, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. Those with a beginner's mind ask questions that experts don't. This is one of the main reasons why week after week, I bring people from different industries here onto the podcast to share their thoughts about how we can navigate change. It's also one of the reasons why I believe so deeply in the power and results that design thinking provides us with. Over the past decade, one of the most powerful experiences I've witnessed is that when we begin with empathy, what we think is challenged by what we learn. This week, I'm delighted to have Daniel Andor, founder and lead product designer of Duran. Daniel specializes in working with startups that create a meaningful impact. His proven process helps to solve challenges and deliver outstanding results while aligning teams and saving time. I first came across Daniel's work when I read Revolutionizing the Public School System, a design sprint case study. I'm delighted to have him join me today to share more about design sprints and how he sought to revolutionize the public school system. Welcome Daniel with me, and I begin by asking him to share what design means to him 
and to tell us a little bit about his journey into the design sprint industry. A couple of weeks ago, I had a similar discussion with somebody. For me, design is basically a solution. It's not user interface. It's not, I don't know, pixels on a screen. It's coming up with a solution to a problem. So that means that you identify the problem, you understand the context, and you come up with a possible solution that you can somehow validate. And that, yeah, definitely means that you have to have some kind of empathy as design thing promotes, because otherwise you are just, I don't know, working in a vacuum somewhere and coming up with some kind of ideas that might be useless in the end. So yeah, if you have to put it in a nutshell, design for me, it's solutions. So I'm a product designer for, I guess, more than nine years now. Started in a small local startup that they have back then a couple of products. Two of them were successful. Like I stayed there for a couple of years. And after that, I started to work remotely and slowly transitioning to freelancing. And last year, because like I kind of, I don't know, had enough and wanted something new and different. Yeah, it's tricky, but that's kind of true. I, I kind of have enough of like how things were and how I worked back then. And I transitioned to basically, I started the agency. Like, this was the whole thing. I reached out to a friend of mine that helped me set up the basics. Uh, and after that, I it was like a double transition in a way because I switched services as well. Went from standard UX, UI guy kind of stuff to, okay, let's try out workshops. And after that, okay, let's try out design sprints. And this is how I ended up with, with what I have at the moment. After having seen design thinking be used in all kinds of ways, I was often left frustrated at it being often more about moving through the hexagons versus empathizing and bringing people into the conversation to create actionable solutions that we could iterate upon. Too often, design thinking becomes about an activity versus a mindset and a shift in how we work that can enhance the culture of an organization. So when I first learned about the design sprint, so many of the gaps that I had seen were filled in. I first learned about the process when I read the book Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Solve and test a problem in just five days? I asked Daniel to tell us, what is a design sprint? So a design sprint is basically a five-day process where you go from an idea to a prototype and after that to validate it with real users. Uh, which is like really helpful in order to see if you need to pivot the idea, if you want to test out new things. And it's basically having a structure that moves you from just an idea and a problem eventually to a possible, maybe a couple of possible solutions after that to a solution that you want to test. It's very, very helpful. Uh, how I do it, it's like basically I use the four-day design sprint which because of the remote thing, it's now it's five days. So we went kind of back and forth with that. But also there is a pre-sprint week where I try to learn the context and try to understand the, the whole area of okay, why we want to solve this thing, what's about, who are the users, target demographics, like this whole stuff. And we also use that whole information during the sprint as well. Daniel mentions a keyword, structure. I often observe that we understand why we need change. We oftentimes even know what works well. Where we continuously struggle though, is how do we actually take ideas and ensure that they are the right ideas and scale and sustain the change when implemented. 
For so many struggling with the how, the Design Sprint provides the structure, the frameworks for having conversations that can take us from idea to action. The Sprint shortcuts the endless brainstorm and debate cycle and compresses months of time into just five days. David Burkus, author of Leading From Anywhere, shares, creativity doesn't just love constraints, it thrives under them. Being able to solve big problems and test new ideas in just five days is the very constraint that can allow our creativity to thrive. I asked Daniel to share with us what benefits he see emerge when we engage in design sprints, especially at a time when we're feeling both overwhelmed yet excited about the future possibilities. Definitely have to try it out. It's tricky because if you don't do it, then yeah, it looks kind of weird that in four days you will have something that you want to test. But any startup book that you will read, it, it kind of goes in that direction. You basically have to create a mess of solutions. You have to try them out and invest in the one that has the potential to actually succeed in a way. And this is where a design sprint is really, really helpful because like you have those workshops and the whole process leads through okay, we have a problem, let's see a couple of solutions, let's agree on one possible solution, test it out. Uh, and yeah, it might sound maybe silly or fast that you can do that in four days, but it's it's something kind of common in startups. There was other ways to test out different ideas or different possible solutions. The huge bonus or, or boost here is that basically you get the whole team's the whole team's idea and perspective in one place. And you can use the, the whole knowledge that they already have and their background and uh, what they know and create solutions using that. And also everybody has a voice, like they can express their ideas, they can express their possible solutions, they can express how they feel and how they think that this thing will work out. And they are part of okay taking decisions, they understand why somebody chose that or why they went forward with that possible solution. So I say that, yeah, it definitely helps you to, to come up with a possible solution. Also, it, you can't do a design sprint for the whole thing. So you have to pick a target area and you do that. So you can come up with a possible solution. But beside that, it's also very helpful in like laying out processes, involving the whole team in something and, and can be in a way like a, a team building kind of stuff. But the outcome is way, way more powerful. Like I've done sprints, the one that you read that was for a redesign, but I've done sprints for, for teams that wanted to just pick up a couple of pieces in, from the design sprint and after that putting inside of their design process in-house and use that in a way. As is often the case with anything design related, you have to experience it to understand it. From narrowing down where to best spend your time to ensuring that everyone's ideas are expressed and their voices heard, to building alignment and trust across teams, to having everyone understand why and how decisions are being made, the benefits of engaging in a design sprint are endless. Daniel mentions the word team often. I ask him, who are the essential individuals that should make up the team to have a successful design sprint? When I started last time with a sprint, some people thought that because we call it design sprint, that means that like just the designers need to be there and like how many designers we need to be in the design sprint. And that's that's not true. Like basically, if you have one designer, that's that's good enough. How I usually try to make up these teams is like be everybody that's 
either knows about the problem, either is in touch with the user in a way or the customer. So we can acquire all their knowledge in there. And that can be, I don't know, a developer. It can be somebody from sales or customer support or the product manager, definitely somebody that can take this decisions. So it kind of involves kind of all of the areas from a company or from a team. And this is, I guess, why it's so great as well, because like it's not it's not a silo. It's not something separated from the company. It's like involves the whole company or all of the areas of the company. What I hear Daniel say as he shares who should be at the table when engaging in a design sprint is that we need a cross-collaborative team, highlighting just one more benefit, breaking down the barriers that exist within an organization. As I mentioned earlier, I was particularly interested in having Daniel share more about his design sprint case study with the organization looking to revolutionize the public school system in Romania. They had a presence with 650 schools with more than 100,000 active users. I asked Daniel to share more about how this partnership came about and what they designed together. Basically, they came for a standard redesign of the platform. This is how it started. They wanted to redesign the platform because it kind of it was outdated. It has a couple of UX flows that weren't really good. Some teachers complained about some aspects of the platform and I basically pick them from that part and tell them, okay, there is a workshop for this. Like, let's try this workshop. If it doesn't work out as you expected, that's no problem, it's on me. And we go this, the standard way, like how things were done so far. And yeah, this is how we started basically collaborating. Uh, we went with the two week whole sprint in a way because they didn't really have anything defined back then. So we started with the basics, defining user personas, defining customer journey maps, uh, defining competitors and see like how they compare to those competitors that they already have in the market, uh, laying down everything regarding how they sell at the moment, uh, which are the channels they are using at the moment. So basically we tried to lay down everything that was business side. So we can use that as a foundation in, in the sprint. And also I give them like a PDF with that whole stuff so they can share it with their teams as well. Uh, once we've done that whole thing and we know, okay, this is, this is kind of the user that we will use during the whole sprint. This is kind of the flow that at the moment they are going through. I basically use all that information to start pre-populating some, some of the canvases from, from the sprint. So when they, they get there, it wasn't like an empty something and like do whatever you can. Uh, it was already, there was a couple of stuff there. There was already a map. There was already somehow my three notes and I guess, yeah, some other stuff as well that were, that were there. So when they started, it was more interesting or more appealing and easier to solve. Uh, and yeah, when we started the sprint itself, it was kind of weird in a way because like, the experts started to talk and they had to talk, take notes. And that was like, that's not how usually things happen. You know, it's like, I have to explain them. Okay, what's how might we note how we take, how might we know why we take those notes. So basically you have to walk them through like, and somehow walk them through the whole process and explain that. It was interesting definitely because they, they never did workshops like this uh, back then. So we started with the, the experts, uh, with the expert interviews. We went through the sprint goals and sprint questions. Uh, there was a kind of hectic because like being in an ad tech company, there are some forces that are in a way outside of what you can 
achieve or what you can influence, like legal stuff and some of the things that came up during these discussions was that area. So we have to somehow sideline those because we can really influence, at least not heavily on that areas. So I, I just tell them, okay, let's sideline those things. We leave them there, but we can't really do a lot of stuff about them. Uh, and during the map, we basically just lay, uh, laid out uh, the current flow that they had inside of the app. Uh, and we put the, the how might we there as well. We highlighted the, the area that was like probably the most problematic, which was the onboarding that was kind of heavy. Uh, and what was the problem in a way is that whenever you enrolled a new, a new uh, student, you had to add their email address as well. And uh, given that we live in Romania, we don't really have, there, there are students that don't have email addresses, you know, because they live in, I don't know, somewhere far in, in the countryside or something like that. And that was, a, that was one of the problems. And this is basically one of the major pain points that we tried some, somehow to solve. It was regarding the onboarding flow because there was this part and also there was some issues regarding uh, how the teacher will add the students inside of the platform. Got it. So, Can I pause you there for a moment? Because yeah. I want to highlight something really, really, really important. And that is, one, they didn't even know that there was something that could, like a framework and an actual strategy that could help them address this challenge or mm -hmm. concern. So that's like one really important element. But the second one, and I love you keep using the sentence, you keep saying, how might we, how might we? And so I would love if you could take a moment to kind of share like the power of the how might we process, like how does that help somebody take a problem they have and then begin to reframe it in their mind towards solving it. So I'd love if you could like share that. You, you kind of sound it up <laughs> in a way, because like that, that's the problem. Usually how we as people work or behave is like somebody raises a problem and we jump start, we jump to the solution straight. Okay, there is this problem, this is the solution. Where the high might, how might we works is somewhere in between these. So we have a problem, let's rephrase that in a way that we generate multiple solutions and we somehow start to see that, okay, there might be a mass of solutions. It's not just that one solution that it's the first idea that pops in your head. There might be a couple, I don't know, tens or hundreds of solutions from which you can test out different ones and see if they work or not, or which could work or which can, cannot work. And this is basically the powerful area of the how might we, or the powerful effect of the how might we, because it somehow helps you to think about those solutions, not just jump from a problem to a, a solution, but like maybe the easiest one. I love when Daniel said, there's a workshop for this. That's something that not everyone knows. Whether you're designing a product or a strategy, there's a workshop for everything that helps us facilitate these very conversations. Daniel highlights a key element that arises, explaining the why behind each step of the process. The design sprint process feels very new and very different, often leaving us asking why. And it's important to help people gain that clarity so that they can also build the capacity to take these strategies back to their organizations. Elon Musk also spoke to the importance of sharing the why in a room on Clubhouse the other day, where he said, it doesn't matter how relevant something is, if it's irrelevant to others, it's not relevant. 
One of the challenging yet most rewarding aspects of design thinking is that it helps us unlearn old thinking habits that often conflict with being creative. This work is so important that it's the focus of Adam Grant's new book, Think Again, where he advocates for why we all need to reconsider our assumptions and think again. In a rapidly changing world, he says, what matters most is our ability to rethink and unlearn. Design thinking is one of the ways to help learn this skill. Design thinking and design sprint type activities are those that you cannot truly understand their value until you've had an experience. And once you do, you realize just how much is possible and how quickly it can be accomplished. It's about working smarter, not harder. So at this point, Daniel shared the team that's been assembled, they've identified their challenges, they are exploring different solutions, and they've even mapped out some potential strategies. I asked Daniel to continue taking us on the journey of this design sprint and tell us where they go next. Then we started to look basically to see other apps that solved the same problems that we had regarding the onboarding. And we went, yeah, we basically went to the, the, the competitors, but we also checked some other stuff as well. Like, I don't know, one of them was Fitbit or something like that. No, nothing related to what we've done. We just wanted to see, okay, how other people onboard basically users and how they help them get inside of the platform and see the value. Uh, we went, one of the examples was Zapier that I know for sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, we started with that. We went through all of the, all of the examples that the people added there from, as I said, different areas. And after that, the next step was basically starting out and, and uh, sketching, taking notes, doing sketches, doing doodles, doing the crazy. It was kind of weird. I, like you were in a call with people, but they have to like write on paper. It was kind of weird for them. but. Yeah, I guess you don't really have other options. What was weird back then is that I didn't really use music or play music inside of the workshops. Now, now I do that. It was just plain silence and hearing the noise of like pen and paper, everything like that was the whole thing. Um, so yeah, we started to do that. And after that, they have an offline work to, to come up with the concept. And the concept was again, a bit, I don't know, problematic, probably. A, I usually say that I probably didn't explain it as well as as I should have done, because as you, as you mentioned, they didn't know about they didn't knew about the workshop at all back then, and there are still a lot of startups actually or a lot of companies that don't really know about design sprints, and so it's not something new. From what I talk with companies, there are still a lot of them that they don't know or they they think that it's something completely different. Like what I heard usually is that oh design sprint we do that in Scrum. And that means that basically you will work two weeks for with us. And after that, it's like something else. It's nothing related to them. You have to re-explain that it's not like a scrum sprint, though it's called a sprint. It's something else. And it's because it's design, it's not just design. It's again, it's more from like strategy part. So you have to explain this stuff as well. But yeah, so going back to the second day, uh, they had to do the concepts uh, and uh, that was offline and they had to send it over in, in email. Uh, once they finished that, they basically sent over everything in email. It was all kind of concepts, pen and paper, iPad drone, like the whole area of this kind of stuff. And the last day was basically just vote, voting, creating heat maps on the concepts, deciding on, on the concept, concept that we will go forward, creating the user flow that we will use. 
uh, and creating the storyboard. And that took kind of a good chunk of time creating the storyboard. Started to cut down the concepts in different pieces and put everything there. Also, uh, I even add some, some notes where we outline all of the elements that will, will be on the screen. So when I start a prototype, it's like everything is there. I don't have to ask about them or, or go back to I don't know some other people inside of the team. Just take the storyboard. Okay, that's the backbone of what we'll do from this point on. Everything is there, start prototyping. I love how Daniel highlights that we too often go from problem to solution with no steps in between. Design helps us slow down. Daniel also highlights how they did not seek to reinvent the wheel. Rather, they did research about what was already working in other industries to see what they could learn. There are a number of different processes we're all currently designing as we think about how we might best assimilate back into our schools, workplaces, and communities. We're often quick to design solutions, and this is where design sprints can play a crucial role in helping us slow down, ask the right questions so that we can design the right solutions for our users. Daniel's story and outcomes highlight the innovation that can occur when we step away from isolation and into collaboration with others. Collaboration with a facilitator comes with a number of rewards. I asked Daniel to speak further to the advantages of working with a workshop facilitator versus trying to solve these challenges alone in-house. Yeah, you used the word facilitate. That that what was I want, wanted to say actually is like in the first couple of days, you just facilitate the whole thing. It's not necessarily your knowledge there. Uh, or it might be in a way, it might be your knowledge or your experience in your domain, but you definitely don't have the experience that they have in their own industry or in the in their own domain so you just facilitate the whole thing there uh, and they what's somehow magical let's say in a way is that they have all that knowledge somewhere they know about those stuff but they never took time to actually start putting it on paper or writing it down or having a process that somehow can extract that knowledge mix it with the knowledge from their team members and come up with something and that was the feedback actually that i got from them that they knew that there was a problem. They knew that there might be a possible solution, but they never took the time to actually do it. And they never synced with the whole team and aligned the, the whole team around, okay, this is the thing that we want to try now. And that's basically the, the powerful part. You, you, or in my case, me as a facilitator, I just come, I facilitate up to those three days of workshop and I guide them in a way to, make sure that, okay, we cover everything, everything is in track. We have the information that we need. I explained the exercises, but it's still their, their knowledge, their experience, their concepts, though I put my own concept there as well in some cases, but it's kind of their information, you know? And that's, I think that's the most important part in a way. You just help them or guide them, but you don't, I don't know, push them in a direction or, or another direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just gives, I think it's nice to be able to have the time and space really to just be able to mm -hmm. kind of dive into that conversation and have somebody else come in and facilitate this conversation with you through like, you know, these different frameworks and all of the, like you did a great job of walking us through the different strategies that you use with the group. So to continue the story of your work with this ed tech company, this ed tech, um, you know, for onboarding, you know, the teachers into their learning management system, it had such a beautiful outcome. Tell us the outcome that they achieved in sort of this like, you know, four day period. 
Uh, yeah, so we ended up rethinking a bit uh, the target customer. When the first target customer for them or the target user, whatever, who they sell to was basically schools because those are the companies or in our ways. Basically, they had the money, they paid for this. Uh, what we tried to achieve is somehow open up the platform and let teachers, students in, in a way, and uh, use them to somehow sell the platform in a way, you know, <laughs> because they were already there, they were already adding value in. Uh, and uh, that was that was helpful, though they, they made some changes after that, they had some issues with the, the students enrolling, but they kept, kept the teachers uh, as well. It was way easier to manage the students. It was way easier to make sense of what's happening in the platform. We added an onboarding. So basically you had some steps and you know that you have to accomplish some of those steps to get at the whole value of the platform. So it, it wasn't like we ship, we somehow drop you inside of the platform, take care of yourself. It was much more like, okay, you get here, let us help you now to, to go through these steps and make the full value of what we can actually do for you. Uh, they still adding features and stuff there. So it's like, continuously evolving, but that was kind of the, the big outcome of simplifying basically the onboarding for, for teachers and students. What a surprising discovery. They were designing for the wrong users. Daniel shares how his client knew there was a problem, but they also knew that there could have been a solution, yet they just hadn't had the time to bring the team together. Bringing in a facilitator is one advantage, it allows the facilitator to come in and guide you through the experience so that you can focus all of your knowledge and experience on working on the challenge at hand to find the right opportunity. They changed their targeted user, he shared. As they began thinking, yes, schools were their main customer, but ultimately what they realized was that teachers were at the forefront of designing how successful these initiatives would end up being ultimately making them the key users of the products. This is a critical reminder of why we must ask who we are designing for. I asked Daniel to share more about how this shift took place in regards to thinking about who the user was that they needed to be designing for. For us, it, it kind of happened in the first week, in the pre-sprint week, basically, when we started to lay down, okay, let's see who we, had, we talked to here. And it was, okay, but kind of the main main user persona in this whole thing was the teacher. That was the person that used the platform on a daily basis and most of the time. The school or the admin or somebody from the school, it was mostly just setting up the stuff and that was kind of his role. Uh, but after that, it was the teacher who, I don't know, used that for teaching the students to give notes to give the homework and whatever everything was somehow around the teacher so we went okay our personas is the teacher that was our main focus also we defined the platform as a place where we want teachers students and parents to come together and somehow help the education system to work so it was kind of obvious that for us the mind shift change in a way it happens in the pre-sprint actually not in the sprint week uh, we just used the teacher after that as our main target customer through the whole sprint. And we actually tested with the teachers because that was our target customer. That's so fascinating. So before this group even came to the table, you were able to help them identify where their challenge really lied. 
We talked it through in the pre-sprint week when uh, it was basically the deciders. We had the two deciders, the product manager and the founder in, in the pre-sprint week workshops. And there was the whole discussion about okay, competitors, users, whatever it happened during that period. And this is what we ended up, okay, let's, let's aim to the teacher because that's the problem what we have at the moment. And this is how we actually shifted a bit the whole thing. Because in the beginning, yeah, they are still selling to schools because those are the paying customers in a way, but it's not the, necessarily the end customer. Daniel shared that as they reviewed the different personas, they realized it was the teacher who was really the true user of the platform. Yes, the school was the main purchaser, but the conversation kept returning to the teacher. This happened during what Daniel called the pre-sprint week. It's a key part of the process. The facilitator gathers the research and information to refine and design the sprint experience for when the team comes together. As Daniel was doing the pre-sprint prep, he was able to pinpoint this gap and identify the correct user to focus in on, again, saving the company a lot of time. This is a gap that might not have otherwise been realized. When Daniel and I first connected, he shared that education was an area of passion and great interest that he wanted to impact change in. I asked Daniel, what role design sprints can play in helping us reinvent education? It definitely helps a lot because like you have the chance to sit down with all of those stakeholders that are involved in, in like the whole educational system, if you want. You can talk school-wise or even larger and once map out the problems and see how you can solve that. So instead of like, I don't know, just do brainstorming sessions or something like that, it's not something structured, you can go with, okay, there is this problem that, I don't know, regarding our school or regarding our uh, whatever, let's say school because that's easier. Regarding our school, uh, lay out the problem, Talk about it, present it. Teachers can come and present it or parents can come and present their aspect as well. And after that, you can lay out a map for that to see, okay, where that problem presents in our journey as students, as parents, as teachers, as whatever. And you can come up with a couple of solutions. So it definitely helps you not just mapping out, but coming up with possible solutions. What usually happens and what people have done before the sprint or before the lightning decision jam is that they went in like brainstorming sessions. And basically that's just like, usually it's just a mess. You know, it's like a couple of people in the same room, somebody is very loud, talk a lot. And that's kind of what's happening. Uh, where the sprint or the lightning decision jam helps is like, you have the voice, you can express your ideas, you can come up with your own solutions and present them in a way. And after that, even if it's not baked, it's still there. So you can be sure you were part of the whole process and you understand why those decisions were made and how they were made. So it's not like something happened somewhere and you don't know what happened and why. You are actually part of the whole process and you understand the context, you understand that process, you understand why that's the outcome. I think this is the most important part. So it's nobody like, what usually happens is that people are left out in a way. And decisions happen somehow over your head and you don't know like why somebody, I don't know, changed something in our school. Like this way you can be part of that, that whole decision process basically. And yeah, the design sprint shouldn't be like, it happens once after that you forgot about it. You can 
either use the whole design sprint, either pick out some of the exercises and use that in like a weekly or daily basis, whatever helps basically to solve the problems. For anyone who sat through an unproductive brainstorming session, you'll resonate with what Daniel shared when he said how they're often not structured correctly, rarely resulting in any meaningful action and improved outcome. It's crucial, Daniel shared, to understand not just how decisions are made, but to understand the different stakeholders involved in the system we're designing for. This is something that's come up again and again throughout my conversation with Daniel. He mentions the importance of empathy and how hard it can be to move away from what's familiar and comfortable. He reminds me of something that Adam Grant also says in his book, Think Again, that we need to adopt more of a scientist mindset, allowing us to see change as a series of small experiments. Daniel also highlights how oftentimes we're waiting for the Messiah to come, for someone else to come and tell us what the solution will be. I think we've all learned by now that no one's coming and that one of the most beautiful parts about utilizing design thinking is that we get to decide what change will look like in our communities and in our organizations. While we must collaborate and learn from one another, it's exciting to know that there doesn't have to be a one size fits all and that we have the flexibility to adapt ideas to our own unique context. I asked Daniel what advice he would give to leaders who may currently be feeling overwhelmed, yet are excited about what's possible when starting an experiment and who the right people are that they should be thinking about to bring together as a team. I would definitely involve at least teacher and student, at least those, because those are the, the persons that stay like a couple of hours in the same place. If you can involve somebody from like, I don't know, a parent representative or something like that, that's also a huge bonus as well, because you can see what the problem is on their side. But also it really depends on like what kind of problems you want to tackle, because if it's something that involves all of these three parties, then you definitely need them in that place. Uh, so I would start with defining out probably some problems and see the stakeholders, as we call them, uh, that are affected by the by those problems and try to involve those in, in, in the workshop. Daniel highlights something that we've all been making note of, the importance of bringing the teacher and the students to the table when designing. One of the greatest benefits I've gained from practicing design thinking and design sprints is not only a shift in my own mindset from creative confidence to asking better questions that lead us to meaningful outcomes, but I've also noticed how uncomfortable this process can be as it challenges our traditional ways of work. I asked Daniel, what do we need to unlearn so we can become better strategic problem finders and problem solvers? I would say to somehow go back to basically, even in design, design thinking, there is empathy and that somehow got lost around the way. And uh, a lot of designers that if you talk with them they say that oh, yeah we do design thinking and whatever and a lot of them don't really have anything to do with that it's just they start to uh, once they hear a problem they start to do some kind of user interface for that that's not necessarily design uh so if i was thinking about maybe one thing that you have to learn i would say definitely going back to empathy and 
and maybe a critical mindset. So you can somehow decide if something it's okay or it's not okay and think somehow and do research and somehow enlarge your your way of viewing stuff and to understand that okay this whole world is not just about you it's not like everything revolving around you you are just part of something that is bigger than you i love the word and i've never heard anyone use this before having a critical mindset tell me what that means to you i think it's kind of like uh, i don't know how it's in, in 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 your country but here like with the whole covid situation it was like a lot of conspiracy theories a lot of stuff and a quite easy answer for that or a quite easy way to solve this is just to have a mindset that you get that information you read it and it's not just okay that's true because it appeared on facebook or whatever you have to dig a bit deeper on that and see if the source is credible, if uh, what they said appeared in some other places. So it's basically just in a way rethinking or, or checking back if something is credible or not, not just like using it because it, it appears somewhere and definitely if it's on Facebook, it's true. Daniel points out a challenge with design sprints and design thinking in general, and that's our lack of emphasis on the empathy phase. Like he mentioned earlier, we're often quick to jump from problem to solution, but really taking that step back, going into our beginner's mind, having conversations with those we're designing for is something that challenges how we traditionally design solutions. I also love his use of the word critical mindset. Credibility of sources is proving to be a popular theme over the past few episodes with our guests. It's definitely something that COVID has brought to the forefront as a serious challenge that our society needs to address. Listening to Daniel was so inspiring. I asked him what advice he has on a personal level, given that he made a transition during COVID for others looking to do the same in their careers. In 2020, basically, at the beginning of the year, before the COVID pandemic, for me, it was kind of that period when I started to feel, okay, I don't want to do freelancing anymore, at least not the way it, it, it was before. And I want to do something else, but I didn't want to set goals. And I just delayed that for three months, I guess, or something like that. Before I actually reached out to somebody and okay, somebody has to help me to set goals. That was the idea. And, uh, uh, and he just asked me, okay, why you don't want to like set goals? Or why don't you want to write something down on paper? And, and the thing is, what I told them is that once it's written down somewhere, then you can help be accountable. Uh, and if you fail, then you know that you failed because it's there. And what he said, it was that basically, yeah, but if you don't set anything, then you don't go anywhere. And that was kind of, yeah, that's true. Like if you don't, basically what he said is if you don't set a goal, like if you set a goal, the worst thing that can happen, you fail that, but you're still in, the, in that direction. If you don't set anything, you don't have what to fail, but you don't have a direction as well. That was for me like kind of like, a, okay, a mindset shift. And the next thing was, okay, let's see how to set goals. And this is how I started basically to set like a three-year kind of plan in a way, more like, okay, I would like to be, I don't know, kind of in that direction in three years. Uh, I got around something called the Dan Sullivan question. I used that framework and I actually meshed it up with something called the dreamlining. And basically I created like a framework for myself, okay, how to set my own goals. 
Uh, and I used that after that I just sent it over to my friends because they wanted to use it and it was like everybody started to use that. Uh, and the, the whole thing was I set like a direction because it's not like a plan. You don't, I don't have a three-year or five-year plan. I have a direction. And based on that direction, I set some kind of quarterly goals. And after that, I set tasks. So basically, once you have the direction, you break it down in something that's much more easier to manage. And after that, you make it in something that's actionable. And that for me, that was the most helpful thing. But before that, it was kind of mess. I went just with how other people are going everywhere, doing everything that come. And yeah, it was kind of messy. Daniel's wisdom is endless. I love how he shares, if you don't set a goal, you don't go anywhere. You can't fail and you can't succeed. The journey of change is messy and we don't have to do it alone. His closing words bring us full circle to the idea that we started with. Innovation doesn't happen in isolation. One of my favorite books is by Dr. Wanda Austin. It's called Making Space, Strategic Leadership for a Complex World. And in it, she shares, leadership is not accidental. You have to make the time and space with your team to be strategic in this complex and global world that we live in today. Design sprints are one way to be incredibly successful in this endeavor. I share lots more about this on my Instagram and my LinkedIn when it comes to design thinking and design sprints. So join me over there. You can also find the link to join our club on design thinking and clubhouse in the show notes and in the blog post. And of course, I'll have many more guests on the podcast to dive deeper into this very topic with me as we all try to figure out how to best navigate change in our rapidly changing world. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 